Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Now that the world is catching on to the advantages of the gig economy, Sirius Executives CEO Pam Wasley is helping companies satisfy their need for interim executives and advisors at the most senior levels and bringing the staffing industry up to date along the way. In this episode of Hack the Process, Pam will tell us why seasoned veterans across all industries are opting for short-term engagements, how insightful process documentation can save a company hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and what she's learned from sharing her experience and mentoring entrepreneurs. Today I'm speaking with Pam Wasley, and she's the CEO of Sirius Executives. Pam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I'm excited to talk with you about it. Could you tell us a little bit about what Sirius Executives is and what you're doing? Yes, we actually place temporary, part-time, and project-oriented executives across the country. That's Canada and the U.S., and we're also now starting to place executives across the world since we've just gone international about two years ago. Wow. So you're like taking the gig economy up to the sea level. We are. We're the C-suite giganomics. <laughs> it's interesting because the economy has been changing so radically lately, and so many people are working as gigs rather than as full-time employment. Yep. And people ask all the time, well, are your, all of your people old and retired? <laughs> and I said, no, the average age is actually 46, 47. These people just chose to do the work that they're doing. They like the part-time. They like the challenge of going in on an interim basis. They love this lifestyle. So it is. It's, it's chosen. It's not because they're in between jobs. And 46, 47, that is also, you know, with the ageism of, of certain industries, that get to make a big difference. I'm curious how ageism affects what you're doing since people are asking about it. Well, we do like to put people out there that have lots of experience. Now, there's a danger to having lots of experience and not keeping up with the times. So the people that we bring on are, they really keep up their skills. They're really always learning new things. So they are prepared to go into a company, use their information they've learned on their jobs and their assignments before and applying them, but they apply it with new technologies, new thought processes. You know, they really get the job done for the companies. You know, it's funny because I, I rarely have anybody ask, so can I get somebody who's 30 or 40 or, you know, they don't tell me what age they want. In fact, it could be a millennial company that really wants somebody who's seasoned. They want somebody in their 50s, 60s, because they want that mentoring and, and moving quickly from somebody who's been there, done that. So I'm not seeing really age being a factor here as to whether our customers want young or old. That's encouraging to hear. But I'm also curious about people who are in that age bracket. I mean, people grew up with the expectation that they were going to be working you know, for 40 years for a single company and they were going to get a gold watch at the end. And the economy has changed radically under their feet. I'm, I'm sure that that's something that people you're working with see all the time. Well, you know, what you're describing actually is in my father's time. <laughs> in fact, I have to tell you, I grew up with my dad saying, work hard, be loyal, be dependable, and you'll have a job for life. 
<laughs> well, that doesn't apply today. And actually, the baby boom, the baby boomers are are different anyway. I mean, we we as a generation, and I'm one of them, so we're, we as a generation never want to get old. So I don't care whether we're 50, 60, 70s. Uh, you know, we don't we don't care. We're just going to keep going. We like what we do. We are passionate about what we do, and we don't consider ourselves old because we're keeping up with our health. We're keeping up with our physical condition. So it's a different generation than it was with the traditionalists. And the people that you're working with now, they've opted actively to go for employment that's not full-time, one place, multiple years at the same place. Right. And, you know, one of the main reasons they like this work is because they are people that literally they'll go in and very quickly start to produce results. So because they're able to do that, they very quickly get things in place. And you're, you're a process guy, so you understand, you know, putting things in so that they are consistent and they work properly and they continue on when you leave. Well, once these are in place and things are running well, these guys and women get bored. <laughs> so they want to move on to the next assignment because they want another challenge. They really like work that is challenging to them where they're learning things, they're seeing things, they can apply new things to. It's just, it's fascinating the way they think. I can see that. To be honest, I've worked in some companies where the people who've come in as temporary executives have been the hatchet people who've come in to do a lot of downsizing. Well, that happens. It happens. I mean, and I'll tell you, we don't come in to do that. I mean, one of the things that our people do when they first go in, the first couple weeks, they assess the people. And in that assessment is not who do we fire tomorrow by the way, unless it's a turnaround. If it's a bankruptcy or you know a bad turnaround, sure, we're going to look for ways to cut costs. But other than that, we really look at the people to see, okay, so who's trainable? Who could be moved to another department because their skill set's not there, it's over in that department? You know, we look for places where people will thrive more so than kicking them out of the company. So we are, we're not really hatchet. People. We really do look out for the people because, again, most of the companies that we work for are small to mid-sized companies. They're family-owned, they're privately owned, and they love their people. They don't want to see them fired. That's why they haven't fired them in the past. They want to see if we can't work with them. Now, now they understand if we come back and say, this person would be better off in another industry, another job. And then, you know, obviously the owner and, and our executive can actually help them transition to something else. They can look out and see what, if there's another job for them in another company or, or something else. So, again, we try to look out for the people. We don't just fire them. That also speaks to the advantage of having executives who are moving quickly from one company to another company because those people have that network and they know where, the, where they might be able to repurpose a resource that isn't producing value at one company but may be able to produce value elsewhere. Yep. And everybody's got skills. So just because they're not good at where they are doesn't mean they won't be great someplace else. And these days, you know, knowing how to move from one company to another is an essential employment skill. What is the usual em- employment time for people? Do, do they tend to work full time? Do they tend to work part time? Do they work at multiple companies at the same time? If they're part time, yes, they'll may- maybe they'll work for two, three companies all at once. If they're working on an interim project, which is five days a week, then obviously they're just working for us. And the term for an interim position is typically somewhere between six months and nine months. So, you know, companies usually just want an interim for a short period of time. So, but it is usually somewhere between six and and nine months. How long have you been doing this? 
<laughs> we've been doing it for 12 years and we, we actually started off as a consulting firm uh-huh. back in 2005. And we were this group of executives that had different functional areas, different areas of expertise, and we decided to sell each other services. When we go into a client, maybe they need something else and they could bring one of us in. So that's kind of how it started. But I can tell you that after two years of doing that, I said, you know, we're just another consulting firm out there. Plus, because we do in every functional area, people can't get a handle on exactly what it is that we specialize in. So I started looking at other models out there and I ran across this interim executive management model in Europe and they've been doing it for years. Hmm. And I thought, hmm, I hope they don't mind, but I want to steal this and bring it over here to the United States. And there was one other company that was doing it and they were only doing it in finance. So I thought, well, we won't really interfere with them because we're going to be doing it in all functional areas, sales, marketing, IT, HR, finance, operations. So we're in all the, the functional areas. And best thing we ever did. So in 2008, we rebranded and became Serious Interim Executive Solutions, which today we've shortened to Serious Executives. But it's been a long time. And it's and, and, and by the way, the contingent workforce didn't catch up to us till about 2011, that's when people started to understand how they could use an executive in an interim part-time basis. Because before that, it was, oh, it's a tough education. Because they go, you want me to hire a COO part-time or on an interim basis? Sure, if I just fired my COO and I wanted somebody until I found the next COO person to come in full-time, that made sense. But for somebody to come in just for the, their expertise to help them get to the next level, they're like, really? So it was a real education. And now it's, it's commonplace. People understand what they really understand what you can do with, with an executive and how valuable it, the value it brings to their companies today. It's, it's, it's really amazing what we can do for companies today. Now, I'm surprised to hear that the business model is something that has been happening longer in Europe than it's been happening in the United States. Yeah, well, you know, they have labor laws over there that once you hire an executive, <laughs> you can't get rid of them. Now, you can, but you pay them forever. You pay them severance forever. You pay them benefits forever. You pay them, oh, you just, you pay them a lot of money to get rid of them, whether they're good or bad. So people over there went to this model, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, and really decided, okay, we're going to hire an interim whenever we can. And that's, they've really loved doing it. Now over here, we don't have those labor laws. So it's a little bit different. So it was, it was really an education here. So it took a lot more, you know, getting the, the word out there about this whole concept for people to really believe in it. Yeah, if anything, I would think that the lack of job security here in the United States would make it less likely that that model would move over here effectively. Well, it took a while, I have to tell you. I mean, you know, in 2008, you know, we thought, oh, this is going to be great. And it did. It was much better than being a consulting firm because people understood what we did. But that doesn't mean just because they understood it doesn't mean they accepted it. So it was really an education. We had to really put out a lot of content and information about how that could bring value to your company. So before you started this, you were you said you were running a consultancy and that was going on for a couple of years? Actually, I kind of fell into consultancy just by accident because when I left, I started another company and I I left that and I came into and I decided, okay, I want to do something different. But I hadn't decided what I wanted to do 
So I started doing a little consulting because my clients from these other companies said, we know you're bored. We know that you want something to do. So why don't you come help us with this project? So I started doing that. And it was funny because I found out that I didn't really like the consulting model at all. And here's why. As an executive, I was used to working for the CEO, the board of directors. I was just used to working with the executive team. So I'll give you an example. One of my customers was Microsoft. I was working for the director of this and the manager of that and the VP of this. I mean, I had so many people that I was giving feedback to, and this was on their live meeting project. I was giving so much information to them and trying to get decisions made that I didn't feel like I was making an impact because, you know, you're not talking to the people that really make the final decisions. So that's something else I really liked about this interim model because you're working with the executive team and you're part of that decision making. You're making an impact that you can see. That's one of the advantages of coming in, but actually as a consultant or as, as an external person in general, I think, is that you can go outside of the hierarchical structure and you really have direct access. Is that something that the people that you bring in find is an advantage to the work that they're doing? They do. Again, they, they're almost perfectionists. They like to go in and, like I said, it's not the 90 days. I mean, it's within the first two weeks, and there's stats on this. Within the first two weeks, they know 93 to 95% of what's happening in that company. They really have drilled down. They know exactly what to pull, what questions to ask, and they get all this information and then start to pull a couple things. So one of the things they come out with first is some short-term wins easy things that they're seeing that can show results right away. And then from there, they, you know, they start to put together a longer term plan, which again, will transition what they're going to be putting into place to the team that's there. So one of the things we never want to do, and again, consultants are always blamed for this. Well, you know, we got rid of the consultant and, you know, everything fell to pieces. (laughs) It's like giving somebody a strategic plan and there's nobody there to execute it. So what we try to do in all cases is make sure that as we were leaving, there are people there that we can transition all this knowledge to, and immediately they'll pick it up. In fact, here's a, here's a great example. There was a, a customer that came to me, called me, and he says, I'm losing Mark. He says he's, it's time for him to go. And I said, well, it is kind of getting towards the end of the assignment. He says, I can't afford to be without him. <laughs> I said, sure you can. He, he says, no, no, I really can't. So I went back and I talked to Mark. He said, he told me all the things he had in place and that his next move was to talk to the CEO about bringing in, and by the way, this interim was us, uh, interim COO, was to talk to the CEO about bringing in a director of ops, not a COO, but a director of ops, which obviously is a you know, much, much less expensive position to fill. And so he convinced them to do that. He brought them in, taught them everything, showed them all the processes and things that he put into place. And it was so smooth. So about two weeks after Mark left, the CEO calls me again and says, best move I ever did was bringing in this director of operations to take the place of Mark. He says, my costs have gone down in salaries and you know, I've got somebody that's just as good as Mark because of everything that Mark put into place. <laughs> wow. It sounds to me like process documentation must be a very big part of what people come in to do. They do. Yep. In fact, yes, that's your that's your specialty. So, yes, 
our people are very process oriented. <laughs> well, this is hack the process. So one of the things I'm really curious about is whether or not there's a consistent model across your executives in terms of how process gets documented and communicated, or does each individual bring their own unique perspective and their own unique style to how they do that? Yes. One of the things that we talk about, we're not a, a big four consulting firm. We don't bring these templated solutions in or processes in. Again, because we work with the small to mid-sized companies, so we're usually in the 10 to 350 million. I mean, that's our sweet spot. It's family owned, privately owned. And you can't bring something that's templated into these companies because every single one of them's different. And it's going to require a different way to make things happen or make things stick. Sure, you're using some of the same things, but the mix may be a little bit different. So, yes, it is all customized. So you said you have over 7,000 executives you're working with. And I imagine a lot of the people who are working for you either started working independently for themselves or continue to work a lot independently for themselves as well. You know, it's interesting. A lot of them will leave and they've heard from their friend, oh, you got to try this inner management. It's really cool. It's great jobs. You know, you can make a great living at it. It's something you should take a look at. And they're all like, I don't know, you know, years ago when people went out and became a consultant, they could barely make a living. Well, it's not like that today. It's, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. So just recently, because we get so many questions from people who are just starting up or they've run into problems, they, you know, when I'm not on a job with you, how do I, how do I get leads? How do I bring in business? Or I just lost this customer and I thought I was doing everything right. You know, what did I do wrong? Or, or how do I get paid? You know, especially since we're not the ones helping them and they're trying to get paid themselves. It's like, you know, I'm 60, 90 days out. How do I get these people to pay me? So just recently, my business partner and I co-wrote a book called How I Fired My Boss and Made More Money. (laughs) Now, essentially what this book is about is all the insider secrets, how to be a successful independent consultant. And the cool thing about it is really we told them everything. We didn't hold back on anything. We told them anywhere from, you know, how to get referrals, how to get leads, how to brand yourself, how to get paid, the the legalities that you need before you go out, the insurance. I mean, we told them everything. So everything's in this book. It's like, it's like the Bible of independent executives. We're now getting feedback uh, from our executives. It was just launched this year, which is published in in Amazon and other places. And they're now using it on their desk. When they run into a question, they just flip to that chapter to find out what the answer is. Because again, we want them to be as good as they can be because when they're not working for us, we want them to be successful, to be staying in this profession. And that makes sense. And I'll definitely be putting a link to that in the show notes as well, by the way. Folks who are going to be looking for that book, because I have a feeling there are some people who might be considering being fractional executives out there who are going to be looking for something like that. But one of the things I love about that is that you're not holding back on how things work. You've got all of these learnings and you're just putting them out there, even though when people are working for themselves, they're not working for you. We like to see people do that because, you know, the more they're out there, I mean, when, when they go out on a first job with us, we do give them a lot of tips because it's, it's a little bit foreign to them. And here, here's some of the things that they run into. So when they first meet a client, it's like, I'm on an interview. I gotta talk about my, my resume. I gotta, I gotta just spill everything I did in my history onto the table. And we're like, nope, don't do that. 
number one, you're pre-sold when you come out on a job with us because we've talked to the client about, you know, what his needs are, how this person matches their needs. We, we do some um, assessment testing between the client and their interim so we know it's a good match leadership style and culture. So they're pretty much pre-sold. So what we tell them is don't talk. Don't you talk. The only thing that should be coming out of your mouth is a lot of questions. You should do your homework, do your research on this client, really get to know them. And what you don't know, ask. Because the more they talk, the more comfortable they get with you and the more trusting. Because what you'll do in between is when they come to an issue that they've got, if there's something in your career where you run into the same you know, issue, then you talk about it, what you did for them. Make sure that you tell them that, just because you did that for that client doesn't mean it's going to work for this particular client, but here's some of the solutions that might fit here. So the client starts to feel like, okay, this person really knows what they're talking about, and I really feel comfortable now bringing them in. So that is a, a big thing that we've taught all of our executives before we put them out on jobs, because again, what they tend to do is talk a lot and just spilled their whole resume out on the table. And the client's like, they're rolling their eyes going, no, this person won't do it all. It sounds like very good advice, not just for executives, but for people at all levels when they're coming in for, into a gig. I, I'm curious about the distinctions between the advice you would give to an executive versus somebody who's not going in as an executive. You know, it's, it's pretty much, like you just said, it's pretty much the same. It's ask a lot of questions, really. What you're trying to do in that first call or the first in-person meeting is to make the client as comfortable as possible. Because as you, you and I both know, people only do business with people they trust. So that is the key. So whether you're a consultant, whether you're going in, you know, as a, doing some web designing or graphics artist or whatever, it doesn't matter. You still have to make that client believe that your talents can help them. So again, you're asking them a lot of questions. You're asking them to really, you know, tell them a lot about their company. So again, they, they feel like you're interested in, in them as opposed to it's all about you. And then another tip that we, we give our executives is continue that relationship with the client. I mean, communicate. And it's really interesting because we've been in business for 12 years, never had a lawsuit, never really had an unhappy client. We've had one in our past where we actually changed out the executive. Other than that, the reason why we've had such success is because we have account management on the back end. And you can actually do your own account man management if you don't, you're not working through us. But we actually, every month we touch base with the CEO, whoever it is that's over this interim or consultant. You asked me about consultants. Same thing with the consultant. If he's reporting to the VP of marketing, he needs to communicate constantly. Our guys, we, we touch base once a month, but our guys will touch base every week. So they set up weekly calls. They set up weekly reports. So every step of the way, the client knows what's happening because I haven't actually heard it recently, but I used to hear all the time, no, I got this consultant over there in finance and I actually can't figure out what he's doing anymore. Mm. You know, one of the things we you know, would hate to hear is, you know, you're paying us for doing something you don't even know what you're paying us for. <laughs> so we, we try to make sure that we communicate, actually over communicate to the client. Well, that sounds like a good approach. And actually, I'm curious, how many people do you have working in your own company organizing and keeping track of all of this? 
Well, interesting you should ask that question because we believe in outsourcing. Anything that is not a core expertise of us about what we do is outsourced. So let me give you some examples. I mean, most of the marketing is outsourced. Obviously, the payroll is outsourced. Development is outsourced. The key people that oversee all of this are internal. We hire them and we keep them internal. So we have about a dozen people and you'll love this. My business partner, she and I are very different. I mean, the reason we get along is because she likes to do the things that I don't like to do and vice versa. A very good quality in a business partner. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. So she's the process person. She's operations, back office, and finance. The cool thing about her is... You know, we never wanted a huge company. We felt that with technology today, we could actually build a huge company, but with very little actual support. Now, we still have that client still talk to a real human being and whatever. But again, we we still try to automate the rest of it. So most of our back end is all automated. I mean, literally, when something comes in, it's automatically, there's an automatic search, top five people come up, we automatically send it to the client, our contracts are automated, and when our executives put in their billing, again, automation. So we try to automate as much as we can to make life easy and quick for our customers and for our executives. Now, there is such a thing as automating it too much, and I'll give you an example of that. As much as we, you know, we are in the temporary staffing business, but we're also a technology platform. So literally people can go on and they can select their executive right there off of our site. They can't see the name, they can't see contact information, but they can see everything about that executive and select them. So you would think that most of our clients would do that. (laughs) No, most of them still do the thing of click here, to send us an email or call us. And by the way, we don't have automation on that side. Somebody actually answers the phone in most cases, if it's after hours and nobody answers the phone, but there is somebody that actually answers the phone, but most of the people don't use, they just don't bother to go in and look for their own executive. They still like talking to somebody to help find that perfect person. And we do, you know, we do exactly the same thing they would have done, probably a little bit quicker, but it's it's funny. We thought they would use that more and they honestly don't. And we see from our competitors out there, same thing, that they fill out, well, here's my project. And they'll fill out a whole project form and before they'll actually select somebody. It's actually not surprising to me, considering that you're going for C-level. I imagine that if people were looking for lower-level consultants, they'd be more likely to browse through a list. But at the executive level, I think they want that hand-holding, that concierge service that you're able to provide. Yes, yes. Upwork is a good example that they do, you know, the designers, the web designers, the graphic designers, they do all of those people. And literally everybody comes in and just uses their online platform. So yes, you are correct. And well, same thing with other online platforms, the Ubers of the world and the Lyfts and the, you know, whether you're ordering food or whatever. So they like those online platforms. When it, but when it comes to senior level executives, you're right, not so much. And that makes sense. So I'm curious about the business model that you put together for this, because as you said, it's something that you you saw in Europe and that you applied here. But building something like that, what did you bump your nose up against that wasn't working so that you learned enough to put out the book that you've published? Well, first of all, you know, as, as much information as there was and as many people as I talked to, there wasn't a lot of information, especially here in the United States, about interim management. 
So what I did is I looked at staffing firms and I looked at the one interim company here and I found out everything that they were doing. And in fact, I talked to actually talked to the people. I talked to the CEOs or the people running them and, and they gave me some of the things that they, some of their failings, some of the things that they tripped over and some of the things that I saw were problems that were going to be issues in, in the future. Here's some examples. So as we started this, I, my original thought was, we're going to open up offices all over the United States so that we can have salespeople go out and bring all these leads in and, you know, be successful. Mm-hmm. A lot of face-to-face handholding. Exactly. So we got up to four offices, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Washington, and California, Irvine, California. And I started to see kind of where the future was going. The more we talked to clients, the more we found that you don't necessarily have to be there to get business. Plus, one of the companies, the, the original company that was in the interim basis, in, in the interim business, they got sold. And they got sold for a pretty low valuation, which shocked me. Hmm. But they had a lot of debt on their balance sheet because they had a lot of facilities. They had a lot of servers. They had a lot of stuff that was costing them a lot of money except for on what they needed to really grow the business. So I thought, okay, well, forget about this. You know, we're going to do things a little bit differently. So we pulled back. We now have the two offices, Washington, D.C. and and here in California. And literally, we do a lot of digital marketing. So we hired an agency and we, we interviewed a lot of agencies and ended up with this one. And it's fascinating. You know, the number of leads, you have to stay on top of it. This is a process. This is a, sometimes it's test before you go out. But it's, it's always testing, it's always refining, because as, you, as we both know, Google changes their analytics all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether you're putting out AdWords or you're putting out SEO or whatever, it's they're always changing. So you have to refine, you have to tweak things. So as long as we stay on top of that, we notice the number of leads go up. So talking about automation, I mean, literally, we have tweaked this. So we don't have to, our salespeople pretty much today just have to stay on top of all the leads that come in as opposed to going out networking to get the business to come in. It's a little bit different than we originally thought where we would do what other staffing firms did, you know, big ones. They have offices everywhere and they have these salespeople go out and visiting clients. But rarely, I can't remember the last time a client said, well, I need you to come to my office. They don't, they don't need you to come to the office. And if they need to see you, I'll have a Skype call or a Google Hangout or whatever, or Zoom. Well, that, that actually leads me to my next question, which is the distributed model is becoming a very popular way for people to work in all sorts of gig economies. Is distributed remote sea level work something that you're supporting? Yes. There's actually, there's quite a few, the, the functional areas that it works extremely well. Now, 20% of a business is in CEOs. CEOs, that doesn't work as well with because you really have to have the interim CEO on site. But for like marketing, you don't have to have the marketing person right there in your office. Sure. Does he have to fly out every once in a while? Absolutely. In the very beginning, maybe he's out there for the first week or two. Operations, you know, same thing. You really need to be on site. But then again, you know, you can maybe pull back to three days a week on the, say, the Tuesday and Thursday that you're not there. You've given your direct reports, okay, this is what needs to get done while I'm gone. And literally they can check in with them, but they don't necessarily have to be there. Another one is is sales. We get a lot of our clients asking for part-time sales executives to come in and train to come in and uh, work with their sales team, assess their sales team, look at the comp plan. 
You don't have to do a comp plan right there in their building. You can you can do it just about anywhere. So, yes, we see a lot of these executives. In fact, that's one of the questions they typically will ask, especially if it's a long-term gig. They want to know that they can come home every once in a while. And that makes sense. Do most of your executives work in places then that are remote from where they live? No, our goal is to get everybody within 16 to 100 miles of their home. Mm-hmm. Again, we we'll always look out for family. Family is very important to all of our executives because they have had very successful t- careers and they have forfeited their family life all their years in corporate America. So they want to spend a little bit more time with their families. So they are, you know, they're just cognizant of that. So we try to keep them within that 60 mile radius and our clients prefer that as well. But uh, a lot of clients don't care. And some executives just say, great, as long as I can come home on the weekends or come home every two weeks, I'm good. So as the CEO of this company that is hiring out CEOs, I'm really curious about the network of folks that you've built around you to support yourself in the work that you're doing. I stay in touch with people in this industry a lot. You know, it's, it's important that I know what's going on with not only my industry, but also CEOs of companies that are in peripheral industries. Because a lot of times you can get ideas for your company from an industry that is not related to staffing. And I'll give you an example of that. One of the learnings that we learned recently was one of the things that Open Table did was when they first went out was they just, it was a shotgun effect. They automatically, you know, tried to set up restaurants and the apps on people's phone everywhere. They didn't start in Los Angeles and then work their way to you know, Chicago or whatever, they, they just scattered it all over. Well, that's tough. And I have to admit, we did that. But we, we're seeing, you know, a little bit more focus, especially in our digital marketing. We've, we focus very specifically on functional areas. We specifically start to focus on, on regions. I mean, we really start to go after certain things, certain topics, so that we can bring in a whole bunch of those types or a whole bunch of those, you know, jobs in that region. So we've learned a lot from that shotgun approach to now more focus. It sounds like you can learn a lot across industries. I'm curious where you go now. Whom are you reading? Whom do you follow? And where do you get your inspiration? Oh, there's actually one. It's Jay Samet. And he wrote Disrupt Me. Uh, I don't know if you read that book, but it was fascinating. Because it doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you look around, there's always something you can disrupt. Now, you have to be careful about disruption because you could try to disrupt something that nobody wants to be disrupted. But it's amazing to me, I, I, and I watch, because I mentor some entrepreneurs, it's amazing the ideas that they come up with that I never thought about. But really, all around you, there are things that can be disrupted. And in your own industry, I mean, one of the things that he talks about in this book is how Sony just didn't see it. They had all this music, and they thought CDs and whatever, and they thought it would never be streaming, and they were behind. They had a really scramble to catch up. So you, you always have to be looking out on the horizon. And again, that's where disruption is not necessarily can be found in your industry. It could be found in another industry that you can bring to your industry. And staffing, by the way, is probably one of the most antiquated <laughs> industries there are because, you know, it wasn't until recently that people started to automate it. Up until then, it was everything was manual. I mean, they even had manual files, for heaven's sake. So it's really taken a turn, and more of these older staffing firms are starting to look at technology and how it can help them. 
Oh, it's ripe for disruption if it's got old technology in it. And it sounds, and it certainly is a field that reaches into every corner. One of the things you brought up just now that I'm really interested in, you mentioned you mentor entrepreneurs. And I'm curious about the role mentorship has played in your own career. Did you have mentors yourself? And do you still have mentors? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I have advisors. I mean, I have people that I go to if I've got some questions or whatever. But do I have I ever had a mentor? No, I think that's something I probably could have used and could have benefited from. Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like you're benefiting from the relationship you have with your mentees. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to give back to people that I didn't have in my life. I have to tell you, I made a lot of mistakes in my companies that I started. You know, if I had known what I know today from somebody who was telling me, okay, Pam, you know, you can't do this in a retail business, you can't do that in a telecommunications business or in a staffing business, I probably would have done better, made less mistakes, grown faster. There's a lot of advantages to having a mentor. Again, I just want to give back and I, I see such passion and they really want to accomplish this. And sometimes they need to be brought down to earth. And again, that's something I probably could have benefited from. And the mentorship relationship that you have with these people, I mean, is it sort of a coaching relationship or these, how did these people approach you to get involved with you? I've just met them in, I, I still network a little bit. There's places that I go that I stay in touch with particular people, my network, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I'll be introduced to somebody who's starting up their new business. And if we get along and it, there's a connection there, then we stay in touch so that's kind of how the relationships start. I mean, I don't, I don't have time to be doing it every day. Mm -hmm. If they call, I'll take their call in a minute to answer their question because usually, I mean, it's some fire they need to put out or they need the answer to right away. I mean, when you're that passionate about something, everything's urgent. So again, I try to take their calls when they need it. And, that, and of course, you're, you're out there publishing. Do you also speak? Yes, I do. Yep. Yeah, and that can also help build out that network. And some people also get involved in mastermind groups where they have an opportunity to get together with it. Do you have a, something like that in your in your work? No, I do not. I do have a, um, I belong to a CEO group. I think that counts. Now that's cool. By the way, that that's cool because, boy, they just tell you like it is. <laughs> so, so if you've got an issue going on and you kind of describe it, they ask a lot of questions and then, whoa, they don't hold back from telling you, okay, so here's what we see, Pam. You know, here's, here's, here's some of the things that we see that you could probably do a little bit differently. And they're, they're kind, but they're very direct and to the point. So I learned a lot from them. That sounds like a very valuable group to be a part of. And what about your own mental health, your own sanity as you manage all of this? Because you've got a lot going on. And I understand keeping things automated does help. And certainly having a partner who you can bounce things off of. But how do you keep yourself balanced in your own daily life? Well, there's a couple things. One is I'm fanatical about exercise. And I do that because it, it keeps my mind sharp. Obviously, the better you feel, the better you can you know handle the stress and issues that are coming at you at all times. So I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I'll go to the gym or I'll run or bike or hike or do something in the morning. So the first hour is, is just getting away. And typically some of my best ideas come at that time because it's, it's clear thinking. Occasionally, I've just recently actually started listening to podcasts. If I'm at the gym, I'll listen for, for, to a podcast for about 20 minutes and then I go on to my other routines. But I find that even having the podcast in the other 40 minutes, I have time to really think about it. And then I come home and we shower and eat breakfast. And then I, I'm a big social media person. So I come and I tweet or put something on LinkedIn or, you know, answer any real quick questions there. 
But up till that point, I don't look at email because I tell people if you really need me to text me because I get hundreds of emails. You know, if there's something that's going to stress me out, it's opening up my mailbox and there's all these emails there. Now, I do open them. I do. I glance down them real quickly about eight o'clock in the morning. But literally, the first thing I go to is, and you'll find this interesting, I'm not, a, I'm not a person that's extremely organized. But when it comes to business, I've become very organized. So every night, I put together a priority list. I have the top things I have to get done. And then I've got the other things I'd really like to get done if I've got some extra time. Anything that I don't get done goes to the next day, but nothing on the priority list goes to the next day. I don't care what I have to do those priority things have to get done that day because if you keep putting them off and i have been guilty of this in the past if you keep putting them off all they do is just it delays things i mean you just don't move forward your company doesn't move forward you you know you don't get things done and then people get mad at you <laughs> so i really do try to stay very organized as to what i need to get accomplished that means you know one of my priorities is talking to Europe at six o'clock in the morning, you know, that's on my priority list. And you know, on my way back from the gym at six o'clock, I'm on the phone with Europe. So you, you are working across multiple countries. We just started that two years ago. We had an opportunity to, to look at joining uh, an international partnership alliance. And we've looked at se- several before we chose the one that we're with today. And now li- literally it's, it's real easy because Typically, I just hand it, if I get a call from an international client, I'll hand it over to whatever country is there, and they fill the position. I get a piece of the, you know, the, the profit, and they go on, and they, they fill it. So I don't really have to do too much internationally. I just know that I have a great partner there, and they can fill the job for me. That's another one of those things you build up with your network. <laughs> exactly. And they, vice versa, they send me jobs that literally my salespeople can fill and place the people here in the United States. That's awesome. So, and, and that was just in the last couple of years. So the company's definitely continuing to evolve and morph as, as you work it. I'm curious where you want to see it go next. We've just launched something that's called the Serious Advisors. And we came out with this new product. So it's a new product. And what we saw coming into our site from all of our digital marketing is a lot of smaller companies, you know, whether they were startups, they could be funded, not funded, or could be a, a small company under 10 million. We don't like to turn those people down. I mean, we want to help them if we can. But in our traditional model, it's hard to do that because if they're not very big, it's hard for them to afford one of our executives. Now we came out with this serious advisors and literally they can go onto this platform. And by the way, they do use the platform in this particular case, but they've got a question. They can't get answered. They, like they need funding, they need, they need to get a connection to somebody in Cisco, needs a connection into Google. So they look through our roster of people and they go, oh yeah, that person used to work for, for Google. You know, he probably knows how to get me a connection there because I need to, you know, I need to sell my product in there or I need to get funding from their foundation or, or whatever it is. So we're finding that these you know, small companies, startup companies love going and picking out the top advisors that really can help them. And for that, first one's free, second one is $150 an hour. There's nowhere else you can get affordable advice from a top tier executive on what to do next. And the cool thing about these, all these advisors are trained to really just listen and then at the end really give them, okay, so 
here's some of the things that you can do, the steps that you need to take. Try those out. Get back to me. You know, how did it go? And we'll go on to the next step. So literally, it's their their outside virtual advisory board that they can tap into at all times. And when they don't need that expert anymore, they can see what other type of expert. Maybe this time they need it in marketing or they need it in operations because they got an operational problem. So it's it's really cool. Now we can help them without feeling like, you know, we're always turning down those folks because, you know, they're too small and we really can't. That is a very exciting model. And $150 an hour for a seasoned executive is a steal. It is. <laughs> it is. So I know that a lot of my listeners are going to want to find out how they can get in touch with you and find out more about the work you're doing. Where should I send people? Okay, so they can go to www. Sirius, and by the way, Sirius is spelled C-E-R-I-U-S, C-E-R-I-U-S. So it's www.seriousexecutives.com. Now, for them to get to us, we have some free giveaways. If they would like some tips, I mean, we're, again, we're very process-oriented, so we have things, checklists, and things that would be very helpful to, doesn't matter what size company you are. But we have some tips that we, we have for our, for our guests for this particular show. And it, you go to seriousexecutives.com forward slash HTP. They, they will absolutely get some great stuff to walk away with. Fantastic. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you and inspiring hearing all of the things that you've been doing. Great. Thank you, David. Thanks for being on the show, Pam. Thank you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.